A deadly winter storm leaves dozens of people dead in the U.S. with Buffalo, New York among the hardest hit areas. It's Monday, December 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, more than 40 inches of snow fell in parts of western New York, leaving thousands without power over the Christmas weekend. Also this hour, Russian President Vladimir Putin refers to the invasion of Ukraine as a war for the first time, after insisting for months it was only a special military operation. And experts say hate crimes are on the rise, but that trend is not properly reflected in FBI data. The big story here is that we are not reporting the plight of victims. In sports, it was a big win for the Celtics last night. Forecast says increasing clouds as the day goes on. Temperatures only around the freezing mark. It's 7.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Many parts of the nation are in the grips of a deep freeze as a powerful winter storm continues to bring heavy snowfall and hurricane-force winds to some areas. Buffalo, New York is one of the hardest-hit regions, with some communities under nearly four feet of snow. Ed Dranch with member station WKBW reports blizzard conditions have made many roadways impassable. In certain cases, many people thought that they could brave the elements and make it to where they were going only to come to realize there was an absolute whiteout. Uh, The county executive was describing it as holding a white sheet of paper in front of your face for minutes at a time. Try driving like that. and You're blinded. You have no idea where you're going, where you are. It's disorienting. That's Ed Dranch reporting. A new study shows that racial and ethnic minorities are vastly underrepresented in clinical trials for OBGYN research. NPR's Maria Godoy reports doctors say that could be having a negative impact on the type of care patients receive. The study comes from researchers at Northwestern Medicine. They found that nearly half of the trials and many publications lacked data on race and ethnicity. The authors say that's a problem because clinical trials inform the standard of care and therapies that patients get. They say a lack of representation can lead to biased tools for diagnosing patients. For example, Other research has found that the gold standard for screening for endometrial cancer was based on research that included mostly white participants. That screening tool frequently misses the signs of this cancer in black women. The study appears in the journal JAMA Surgery. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Several North Korean drones crossed into South Korean airspace today. Reporter Sewoon Gong says the latest provocation follows North Korea's record number of missile launches this year. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the drones were first detected in the sky just outside the capital Seoul. The South military took what it calls corresponding measures near and north of the border with its own aircrafts. During the operation, one attack aircraft crashed with no casualties. Some North Korean drones, according to the military, approached civilian residential areas. Commercial airplane departures from the country's main airport were suspended for an hour. North Korean drone last trespassed South Korean airspace five years ago when a device traveled more than 150 miles south of the inter-Korean border to take pictures of a U.S. missile defense system. For NPR News, I'm Seung-gong in Seoul. And you're listening to NPR News. 
in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Many services around Boston are closed today in observance of Christmas. That includes all municipal buildings like City Hall. Trash pickups also delayed for many areas. And parking meters do not need to be fed today, so parking is free. The T is running on a weekend schedule. Nearly 30,000 people are still without power in Maine. Electric companies in the state say high winds during Friday's storms snapped poles and brought down wires. They estimate power will be fully restored late tomorrow into Wednesday. Utilities in the rest of New England have already made a near-total recovery from any recent damage. Outgoing Massachusetts Secretary of Education Jim Pizer says his next steps are unclear after he leaves office in early January. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, he has held that job for nearly eight years. Pizer cites the expansion of early college programs and funding infusions for workforce development as some of his highlights in this post. In his last remarks to the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education this month, he said the state will be in good hands with the incoming secretary, Pat Tutwiler. I've had a chance to interact with Pat multiple times over the last several years, and I'm confident that he'll do a great job as secretary and as a member of this board. Governor-elect Mara Healey has not yet said which education initiatives she'll prioritize, but Healey says she supports taking a closer look at the state standardized test, what it measures and what it doesn't. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Salem kicks off a celebration of the new year today. It's hosting the inaugural Frozen Fire Festival. The free event in Charlotte Fortin Park will have live demonstrations by fire performers and acrobats, plus fire pits, outdoor heat lamps, and even curling. The Anthem Group is the entertainment firm organizing the event. Its president, Chris Sinclair, says the goal is to encourage people to get outside and visit Salem any time of year. We all know Halloween, but it has turned from just a, a fall destination into a spring, a summer fall destination. And so this is the accumulation of the city's efforts to make it a year-round destination. The festival runs through New Year's Day. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. In sports, Celtics had a big win over Milwaukee last night. They beat the Bucks at home by 21 points. Final score was 139-118. to Jason Tatum was the team's leading scorer with 41 points. Celtics will play at home again tomorrow against Houston. Bruins will also hit the ice tomorrow. They skate with the Senators on the road in Ottawa. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds today throughout the day. High temperatures right around 32 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Temperatures in the lower 20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies. Temperatures finally above freezing in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds with highs in the upper 30s and warmer towards the end of the week. Right now, 18 degrees in Boston at 707. On the official Christmas holiday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Most of this country faced unusual cold the last few days. Some of this country faced intense snow, ice, or rain. And when so much of the nation is affected, airlines, of course, are too. They canceled thousands of flights. 
More than 1,000 have been scrubbed today alone. Many more are delayed, just as you or someone like you may be traveling for the holidays. So what does that mean? David Slotnick is the senior aviation business reporter with the travel site The Points Guy. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So this happens from time to time, but how bad is it this time? Well, this time it was about as bad as it gets. Um, it was a situation where the storm was just really unprecedented in size and its longevity. Um, it affected airline hubs around the country, and it came during the busiest travel days of the year. Um, it, it really couldn't have been more of a perfect storm. Um, really <laughs> you, not a scenario. You, you, no pun intended, I guess. But, we should we should emphasize. But go on, go on, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it really was as bad as it gets. This is the kind of thing that you know, network planners and airline planners really, it's the worst scenario they're looking at. And it all came true this weekend. Well, let's talk about the aftermath. I can think of past travel times when I am at an airport where the sun has come out, where the weather is cleared and my plane is still not there because the plane is out of position. The crew is out of position. Um, how out of position are airlines after the last several days? They're pretty out of position. Um, at this point, the travel systems more or less stabilized. Things aren't as bad as they were, Buffalo being the exception, uh, where the airport is closed until tomorrow. But the airlines are really stuck trying to get everybody back into position. During a normal storm like this or a hurricane or something, the expectation would be to be able to recover within a day or two. In this case, just the storm was so widespread and so long lasting that it wasn't possible. They had planes that were just stranded around the country. Uh, crew were completely overwhelmed. The people who schedule crew were completely overwhelmed. Flight attendants and pilots couldn't get through to their dispatchers and their schedulers. Um, so it's really just a, a terrible situation. And now the airlines are stuck trying to um, recover from that, trying to get everybody back in place just as people are trying to get where they need to go. Um, do you have friends and family who know what you do for a living and ask you if they should go ahead with their holiday travel plans? Oh, constantly. Um, I myself went through with my travel plans. I got lucky on the way down. Who knows what's going to happen on the way back? Oh, um, uh, did, family not, without, without getting too without getting too personal, where are you? I'm in Florida, so oh, okay, I managed good. to escape the worst of it. <laughs> That's great. And uh, so, how many days do you have until your return flight? And do you think things will be better by then? Well, we're supposed to go back today, um, and I'm not sure as of right now. Things are looking good, but um, more than 1,500 flights or about 1,500 flights have been canceled around the country. That's much better than the last few days, but you know, it's still an ongoing problem. I'd like to know if airlines learn from these experiences and find better ways to deal with the inevitable reality of the weather, which I, I guess could we could expect it to get worse and worse with climate change over time. The Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, warned airlines over the summer that, that they would face consequences if they did not improve operations, did not improve customer service. Are they finding ways to manage a situation like this better than maybe five years ago or 10 years ago? You know, for the most part, they are. Um, there's a situation where, you know, with the changing dynamics of the pandemic, there were a lot of people who were, um, a lot of airlines rather, who were understaffed and they were really flying more than they could handle. And that was going on really through the summer. Since then, and, and especially since Secretary Buttigieg, um, you know, was making those calls, the situation's gotten better. The airlines have been more disciplined about the flights they're planning. They've been better about staffing up. And they've really done that with this kind of scenario in mind. The thing was, it, this was just so much worse than normal. This was such an unprecedented storm. So, you know, I think this is absolutely going to be a learning experience. It's just something that, you know, it isn't really what we've seen before. And obviously, that's no consolation for the thousands of people around the country who are stranded or who missed Christmas. But, um, 
you know, it's unfortunately one of the vulnerabilities of the air travel network. I wonder what flying might be like in the new year, considering that a lot of businesses seem to be bracing for an economic slowdown. They're starting to cut costs. I would imagine that airlines are thinking about whether they can keep up full staffing or not. Yeah, I mean, the airlines had so much trouble staffing back up that I think they're going to be very eager to keep as many people as possible for as long as possible. Um, right now, they say that they're not expecting the worst Um I spoke with the United Airlines CEO a couple weeks ago. He said that they're planning for a very small recession, um, but don't expect really any impact on that except for possibly their yields or their margins. Um, uh, so, you know, ideally it's going to be a situation where they can keep staff and just try and have some of that stability that they've lost over the last few years. Well, David Slotnick, safe travels to you if, in fact, you do get to travel today. <laughs> Much appreciated. Thanks, Steve. He's a senior aviation business reporter for The Points Guy. Ten months into Russia's war with Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin says he wants to negotiate an end to the conflict. Or does he? The statement came as air raid sirens were reported across Ukraine, and in the Ukrainian city of Kherson, at least 10 people were reported dead from a rocket attack on a market on Saturday. NPR's Charles Maines is covering the story from Moscow. Hey there, Charles. Morning. Uh, let's listen to the words. What exactly did Putin say and how did he say it? Yeah, well, context here, of course, is important. You know, Russia has repeatedly said it's open to negotiations. Uh, the catch, uh, it's provided they're on Russia's terms. And that really was at the core of Putin's message in an interview on state television Sunday. Let's listen. So here Putin says he's ready to discuss some acceptable outcomes in Ukraine, but insists that it's Kiev and the West who've refused to negotiate. And again, more context, uh, Putin's argument for a while now has been that the fighting would have ended on Russian's terms if it weren't for Western military aid to Ukraine. Uh, Putin went on to say the West was trying to tear apart historical Russia, which in his mind includes Ukraine, and that Russia had no choice but to defend its citizens. So certainly he's coming at this with his own unique perspective. Well, let's explore that perspective a little bit more. You've indicated that he's always said he wants peace on Russia's terms. Um, is he reflecting at all the reality that uh, Russia's military has done so badly, has suffered such enormous casualties, and while they have taken some territory in Ukraine, they've also lost some? Yeah, you know, to a degree, although not to a point that's acceptable to Ukraine. You know, early on, the Kremlin wanted regime change, a, a pro-Russian government in Kyiv. Uh, that was behind Putin's calls for denazification, if you remember, this part of this kind of false claim that Ukraine was somehow overrun with fascists and needed mm. to be neutralized. Uh, but as Ukrainian forces pushed Russian troops back from Kyiv and then other portions of the country, you know, Moscow's demands have shifted to uh, really asking that Kyiv recognize Russia's right to Ukrainian lands it has seized. Uh, specifically, this is four regions of Ukraine that Russia annexed in September in a move that was condemned internationally as illegal. But there's a problem here as well. You know, Russian forces can't seem to hold the territory. And so if you're Ukraine and you keep liberating your own country, you know, why would you sign away anything? Um, that said, there is a debate, particularly in the West, over whether it's realistic for Ukraine to reach its stated objective, uh, the complete expulsion of Russian troops from Ukraine, including from Crimea, which Russia annexed back in 2014. Would you give us an idea of the significance of something else that Putin said, something that uh, Russian media were shut down at one point if they used the word, and now Putin is using the word war for the special military operation? What's going on? 
Yeah, you know, ever since the beginning of the conflict, there's been this strange semantic game going on here. You know, the Kremlin has, you know, banned the use of the word war by the media, even shutting down some media over it, and insisted it was conducting a special military operation in Ukraine. And the reason for that term is this. It implied uh, the military campaign was limited in scope, uh, with limited sacrifice for the Russian people. And yet here we are uh, 10 months later, and Putin finally publicly said Russia wanted, quote, the war uh, to end soon. Uh, now, like his negotiation offer, it came with charges the West was trying to prolong the conflict. But the use of the, of the word itself is significant in that it was a small nod to growing discomfort at home over a war that has gone on far longer as been promised or planned and at enormous cost not only to Ukrainians, but Russians as well. And Paris Charles Maines, listening to what Putin said and also to what it may mean. Charles, thanks as always. Thank you. Someone chose Christmas Eve to use human beings to make a political point. Buses carried migrants from Texas to the residence of the vice president in Washington. They were dropped off in a city where temperatures had fallen to 18 degrees. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have sent other groups of migrants to northern cities, seizing attention for their critique of President Biden's immigration policies. Our colleague Andrew Limbong spoke earlier with Amy Fisher, an organizer with the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network. We had volunteers ready to meet the buses and then immediately transfer onto buses that were provided by the city to transport them to a church that had volunteers, hot food, clothes, waiting for people, toys for the kiddos. And then from there, we helped talk to everybody and help them on their way, whether it was helping with transportation for them to get to their final destination or providing ongoing support for those that are choosing to stay in D.C. A lot of the criticisms behind these bus drop-off maneuvers have been that they're kind of like more political ploys. But this is actually kind of helpful to some migrants, right? It helps them get from point A to point B along on their journey. Do you have a take on that? That's exactly right. At the end of the day, everybody that arrived here was able to get free transportation on a charter bus that got them closer to their final destination. So what's next for these migrants? They have to work through their asylum proceedings to try and stay in the United States permanently. At the border, the Department of Homeland Security seizes their documents so they don't have passports, they don't have a way to identify themselves, they don't have work permits. So it's quite difficult for them to get jobs and get settled. But I think that's very much their intention is to find ways to build new lives here in the United States. Amy Fisher of the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network talking with our colleague Andrew Limbaugh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the science behind why some of us need alarm clocks to wake up and others do not, and the power we have to help keep track of time while sleeping. Also, examining the music lyrics that stayed with us this year, coming up here on WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa.
dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm Scott Tong. President Harry S. Truman died 50 years ago, but his doctrine is still important to U.S. policy today. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world. That is next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds today, highs in the lower 30s. Mostly cloudy overnight tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine, highs in the mid-50s. Wednesday, it'll be a mix of sun and clouds with gusty winds at times, highs in the upper 30s. Thursday, mostly sunny, mid-40s, and Friday should be a mix of sun and clouds with highs right around 50 degrees. Right now, it is 18 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Is it possible that you can tell time when you're asleep? In this part of our series, Finding Time, NPR's Will Stone begins with his own experience. Sometimes there's this thing that happens to me, it almost feels like a superpower. Sleep researcher Dr. Robert Stickold says, I'm not the only one. Just hundreds and thousands of people who all say, you know what, I wake up a minute before my alarm clock goes off. Stickold is a cognitive neuroscientist at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And if I have to change my alarm clock because like, I have a flight to catch and I got to get up early, I wake up a minute before that. So is this actually a thing? I can assure you that all of us sleep researchers say, balderdash, that's impossible. Of course, Stickold says humans have an elegant and intricate system of internal clocks that help our bodies keep time. They regulate our circadian rhythms throughout the 24-hour cycle, and this affects when we go to bed and wake up. Except, Stickold says, that doesn't totally explain what we're talking about here. So it's a true scientific mystery. A mystery that other sleep scientists are familiar with, including Phil Gehrman at the University of Pennsylvania. I hear this all the time. In his experience, he says it seems to happen when people know there's something they have to get up for. I think that anxiety about being late is kind of contributing to this. Gehrman says a lot of mornings he wakes up before his alarm, maybe not right before, but in the general vicinity. That he attributes to his lifestyle, though. Because I do tend to get a decent number of hours of sleep, and I think I'm just fortunate that the timing of my rhythm syncs up with the schedule that I need to keep. 
But this question, why is it that some people can wake up at a precise time before their alarm, did remind him of an intriguing study published in Nature more than 20 years ago from a group in Germany. I'm Jan Baum, and I'm a professor for behavioral neuroscience at the University of Tübingen, Germany. Born says his team was interested in how expecting something to happen influences what's known as the HPA axis. This is a complex system in our bodies that deals with our response to stress and involves the hypothalamus, which is in the brain, the pituitary gland right beneath it, and the adrenal glands sitting over our kidneys. Born says they knew there was an increase in HPA activity, meaning hormones were released, as your body prepares to wake up from sleep. We decided to just to try out. <laughs> it came out as, as actually as hypothesized. Here's what they did. They found 15 people who'd normally wake up around 7, 7.30. They put them in a sleep lab and took blood samples all night. There were different groups. One was told they'd get up at 6 a.m., another 9 a.m., but was then unexpectedly woken up at 6. Bourne says there was a clear difference. The group who expected to wake up at 6 had a notable rise in this hormone starting about 5 a.m., as if their bodies knew they had to get up soon. And this is a good adaptive preparatory response of the organism that because then you have kind of enough energies to cope with getting up and you, you can make it until you have your first coffee, maybe. Bourne says the results raise big questions. How did the participants keep track of time so well while sleeping? After all, this wasn't when they typically got up. But Bourne says the results aren't entirely foreign to those who work in sleep research. It is well known that there is a kind of mechanism in the brain that you can use by volition to influence your body, your brain uh, while it is sleeping. For example, he says hypnotic suggestion can help make someone sleep more deeply. Even so, Bourne says he can only speculate as to what exactly is going on here. Very amazing, amazing phenomenon. Over the years, some scientists have tried to see just how real this phenomenon actually is, with mixed results. One small study found that over two nights, people were able to wake up within 20 minutes of the target more than half of the time. The two subjects who did the best were then followed for another week, but their accuracy plummeted. Another small experiment let people choose when they'd get up. About half of the time, the wake-ups were within seven minutes of the target. Some research has found when you simply ask people, more than 50% believe they can wake up before their alarm. But Dr. Stickold at Harvard says the superpower that I and others think we possess may actually not be so reliable. Maybe we'll find out that like a lot of things that we think we do all the time, we only do it once in a while. Still, he thinks there is something here, but that doesn't mean he plans on ditching his alarm clock anytime soon. Will Stone, NPR News. When the words in a song hit you the right way, they stay with you. So our colleagues at NPR Music collected lyrics they could not shake in 2022. Hi, my name is Lars Gottrich. I'm a producer for NPR Music, and this is the band Straw Man Army. The song is Humankind. Straw Man Army comes out of the New York hardcore and punk scene. The very first lyric is, humankind can be hard to find. Humankind can be hard to find. People who look at you right in the eyes. You know, we have seen what humanity has wrought in the face of racial reckoning, presidential elections, COVID mandates, breaking COVID mandates. It, it, it's enough to make you think, are we actually 
looking out for each other. And the band goes on to say that they're talking about humankind as a, as a species that carries a spiritual debt. And so when you're carrying that weight, it can be hard to just kind of look over to your neighbor and wonder how they're doing. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's a bleak song, but it's a bearing witness to what the last couple of years have done to humankind and how it can feel like, as I say later on in the song, that we are oarsmen for a crooked ship clinging for life to the side of it. But then, I come back to that first line. Humankind can be hard to find. And the can is doing a lot of work there. It's saying humankind can be hard to find, but it's not saying that it's impossible. And that's what I have clung to. That's why this lyric has been my favorite of the year. Humankind by the band Straw Man Army. Lars Gottrich curates the Vikings Choice playlist at NPR Music. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the warning that FBI crime statistics are so incomplete they hide a troubling rise in hate crimes and violence. Also, the sudden and sharp freeze in the housing market with interest rates doubling over the past year. Coming up here on WBUR. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. New York's governor says the weekend blizzard that hit the Buffalo area was what she calls an epic once-in-a-lifetime storm. Several feet of snow and strong winds left more than a dozen people dead in Erie County. Power was knocked out to thousands and stranded motorists had to be rescued. Patrick Krangle says his flight from San Francisco to Buffalo keeps getting canceled. Trying to get home, see family, friends in Buffalo, and we've been canceled four times now. So now we're trying to get to Newark so that we can drive to Buffalo. Analysts are predicting retailers across the U.S. will see a record number of returns following this year's holiday shopping season. NPR's Alina Selyuk has more. Between Thanksgiving and the end of January, U.S. shoppers are expected to return $135 billion worth of goods, according to the returns and resale company Optoro. That's up more than 12 percent from last year. Processing returns is costing sellers 50 percent more this year, Optoro says. And that's if they want to put these goods back on sale. And many items have to be rerouted instead to discounters, liquidators, or just landfills. Online purchases are three to five times more likely to be returned. And clothes are the biggest category. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. There's no trading today on Wall Street. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Advocates for people with disabilities are renewing their efforts to address the shortage of care workers. WBUR's Paul Kinerny reports individuals with more complex needs require better trained staff at home and in day programs. Maura Sullivan with the Ark of Massachusetts says the group knows the work shortage is hitting everyone, but... Without increasing these rates for human services, we're going to start to see more challenges that cost the state as well. Sullivan says because of the lack of workers, many adults with complex developmental disabilities are not able to go back to their day programs and still can't get out into the community. We see health declining. We see more hospitalizations. Sullivan says increasing the hourly wage to $20 would help. She says that will take at least $200 million. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paul Kinerny. Advocates for college students in Massachusetts are pushing lawmakers to pass a bill that would give universities in the state money to fight food insecurity on campus. The Hunger Free Campus Coalition is behind the initiative. The group says if the legislation doesn't pass this week, they will pitch the bill again next month. School officials in Chicopee are getting closer to replacing a superintendent who's charged with lying to the FBI. Former Superintendent Lynn Clark is accused of extorting one of the city's police chief candidates into withdrawing his application. Officials say Clark misled federal agents during the investigation. Mass Live reports the Superintendent Search Committee will announce finalists to replace Clark early next month. Backcountry skiing is picking up as an outdoor sport in New England. The cost of lift tickets and the desire for adventure are driving more people beyond traditional ski boundaries. Tyler Ray is the Granite Chief for the Backcountry Sustainability Group, Granite Backcountry Alliance. He says his organization is working on getting more people from different backgrounds involved in the sport. We feel like we've really helped broaden the community and be more accepting of different interests coming to the sport, not just catering to the seasoned veteran or longtime expert skier. It's, it's open to all abilities, all ages. It's very social. It's a sharing community, and that's an important mantra. Ray also notes the group has had to focus on more infrastructure like parking lots and porta-potties around glades to keep up with demand. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. In sports, Celtics won at the Garden last night, beating the Milwaukee Bucks by 21 points. The team will play again at home tomorrow, this time against the Houston Rockets. Bruins will also play tomorrow. They'll skate with the Senators up in Ottawa. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds today, high temperatures right around 32 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the low 20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, highs finally above freezing in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds with highs in the upper 30s, warmer towards the end of the week as well. Right now, 19 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, 
public radio, and the arts. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Happy Boxing Day to those who celebrate. People tracking hate crimes say they're increasing in this country. The FBI's most recent statistics could give the idea that they're not. So which impression is right? Here's NPR's Sandia Dirks. Shock and disbelief. That's what Cynthia Miller Idris felt when she looked at the FBI's 2021 hate crime numbers. Miller Idris knows something about the subject. She's a professor studying violent extremism at American University. The first thing I noticed is like the numbers went down. That's not consistent with everything that we're hearing and seeing. Data coming out of cities and from advocacy groups have all been showing a continued rise in hate crimes, from anti-Semitic to anti-Black hate and anti-LGBTQ to anti-Asian hate, but not in the FBI numbers. And then I see this almost like a little side note, oh, but it's only 63 percent of jurisdictions reporting. Most of Florida and California didn't report. There's no data from America's three largest cities, Los Angeles, New York and Chicago. Every city I typed in, no data there. It's not the FBI's fault that these cities fail to share hate crime data, but Miller Idris says the report shouldn't have been published at all. I think it's unconscionable to release it and to call it national data because it's insulting to victims who don't see their own experiences reflected. The FBI warned ahead of time that the 2021 hate crime data was going to be flawed. The reason has to do with data collection standards. The bureau changed to a new system. The change didn't just happen overnight. Local law enforcement agencies have had five years of FBI training and over $100 million to prepare. The Southern Poverty Law Center's Michael Lieberman says the new standards should be a good thing, a more robust way to measure crime. And still, 7,000 agencies this year did not report any data to the FBI. Lieberman says this year compounds a long-standing problem, the underreporting and undercounting of hate crimes. Sometimes it happens because victims don't come forward. Often, communities most likely to be the targets of hate are also the folks who have the reasons not to trust police. And Lieberman says police don't always correctly label or investigate hate crimes. If you're a city like Miami and you reported zero numerous times in the last decade, you are not giving your community any faith that you are ready and willing and able to respond to hate violence. Right now, reporting hate crime numbers to the FBI is voluntary. The Southern Poverty Law Center, alongside numerous civil rights groups, are calling for hate crime reporting to be mandatory, credible, and tied to federal funding. Because it's about more than just the data. The big story here is that we are not reporting the plight of victims and their communities. That's Brian Levin. He runs the Center for Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino, which collects hate crime data from large police departments. He says these days there are more entryways into hate than ever before, and not just online. Because we don't have the hierarchical yet more limited hate groups that we used to see, like the Klan. Now we have a pick-and-choose buffet even in the last few weeks and months, we've seen a normalizing of hate. That's Manjusha Kulkarni with Stop AAPI Hate. Kanye West has freely made anti-Semitic remarks. Former President Trump continues to use anti-Asian rhetoric. 
Kulkarni says the answer isn't really about police. It's education, teaching kids about other cultures, about history and racism and bigotry, exactly what's under attack in many Republican-led states right now. It's precisely because awareness has been raised and because news outlets are focusing on anti-Asian hate, anti-Semitic remarks, anti-Black actions, that these forces are there to silence it. Kulkarni says accurately reporting hate crimes today is just as important as telling the truth about the history of hate. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. This country's home buying frenzy is really definitely over. Home sales have fallen for 10 straight months. It's the longest streak of declining sales in more than two decades. NPR's Arzu Resvani spoke with buyers and sellers. 34-year-old Evan Paul went into 2022 thinking this would be the year his family would finally buy a home. We just kind of got to that place in our lives where we were financially very stable. We wanted to start having kids and we wanted to just kind of settle down. Paul and his wife, who both work in the biotech industry, did end up having a baby, a little girl just a couple of weeks ago. But they never did move up and out of their two-bedroom condo. Initially, it was because of high home prices in their city of Boston. A year ago, low interest rates unleashed a home buying frenzy, and they were outbid every time. There'd be, you know, two dozen other offers, and they'd all be $100,000 over asking. Then the Fed started raising interest rates, and after a few months, it was the high mortgage rates that priced the Pauls out again. Yeah, eventually the anxiety just caught up to me, and we just decided to call it quits and, and hold off. There are far fewer buyers in the marketplace. That's Lawrence Yoon, chief economist for the National Association of Realtors. He says while buyers like the Pauls have been pulling back, sellers are also reluctant to jump into the market because they'd also be slammed by a pricey mortgage. To re-enter the market today, they would have to give up that 3% and possibly get the new loan at much higher interest rates. And that right there is what's contributing to something of a freeze in the housing market, says Susan Horowitz, a New Jersey-based real estate agent. The sellers aren't putting their houses on the market, and the buyers that are out there, certainly the power of their dollar has changed with rising interest rates. So there is a little bit of a standoff. Surprisingly, that standoff hasn't had much of an impact on prices. Home prices have remained high despite the slump in sales activity. Because there's no inventory. So anything that comes on the market is the one salmon running upstream and every bear has just woken up from hibernation. But even that trend is beginning to crack in some markets. It's been slow going lately at agent Elijah Shin's open house in Los Angeles, where he sweeps the sidewalk, waiting for the occasional visitor to swing by. Well, I think we're in the transition again, and, and of course no one knows the future, but we do look like we need a market correction here and there. It, it was a few crazy years. He gives a thorough tour to anyone who comes through. And this can be a closet, and this is the entire master suite. And connects with prospective buyers however he can. You want a flyer? We'll be here Tuesday and Thursday if you want to But things are just different now. Well, a year ago, this property had already been sold. I think this home will sell too. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Or a lot longer. This little starter home in one of the more coveted neighborhoods of Hollywood first went on the market back in August. Four months later, it's still waiting for an offer. Arizu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the concerning trend of schools across the country facing false reports of active shooters, prompting a full police response in a practice known as swatting. Then in our next hour, the deadly blizzard in Buffalo over the weekend that left dozens dead. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny to start today, then cloudy later on with highs in the lower 30s. All clouds overnight tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny, highs in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sunny clouds, moderate winds, highs in the upper 30s. Thursday, mostly sunny, mid-40s. And Friday should be partly sunny skies with highs right around 50 degrees. Right now, 19 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Now business news. The U.S. Census Bureau shows more people are leaving Massachusetts. New data show the state lost nearly 8,000 people between July of 2021 and July of 2022. The Bureau says housing costs and the ability to work remotely are driving people out of the state. It's been a good holiday season so far for Massachusetts restaurants, thanks to the return of holiday parties and corporate events this year. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer has more. The restaurant business is still not back where it was before the pandemic, but Stephen Clark, president of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, says it's getting better. Consumers dining out and and restaurants reporting higher sales. At the same time, we're hearing that restaurants are less profitable. So the higher costs are actually eating into the profit margin. Food prices have increased almost 11 percent in greater Boston in the last year, according to federal government data. Labor costs are also higher. Clark says many restaurants don't open during their least profitable hours and days in order to avoid those higher costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Some schools around the country face false reports of violence. Ten schools were targeted on the same day last month in Maine. These incidents, known as swatting, seem intended to draw an armed police response, and the fake threats bring real fear. Maine Public's Nicole Agrisco reports. November 15th started like any other day for Kristen DeForge, until she got a text that morning from her daughter, Jenna, who was inside Sanford High School and Regional Technical Center. Jenna said, Mom, there's a shooter in the high school, and I'm locked in my classroom, and I think I went in to panic mode. Nearly a dozen nearby towns and federal agencies responded to the scene. Three air ambulances were on standby. Major hospitals closed their emergency rooms, preparing for the worst. Just 35 miles away, dispatchers received a similar call about an apparent active shooter at Portland High School. The school went into lockdown. Special education teacher Michael Brown says he couldn't quite hear the announcement, but knew something was wrong. 
a few of my advisory students were sprinting down the hall with such a stressful look on their face and fear. And other teachers had come down from the first floor where they had witnessed the police come into the building and were just pushing kids into classrooms. And I knew right then it was serious. More than 35 police officers swept the school, entering each classroom. Senior Eliza Stein was ushered into an unfamiliar office with a few others. She says they were checking social media posts on their phones and soon realized that Portland wasn't the only school that had been locked down. Pretty quick, we figured out how to download the police app and we were listening to the police radio. We were listening to the one in Sanford, like in live time, and we were all just like silent. But there was no shooter in Portland, Sanford, or any of the eight other schools in Maine that received similar calls that morning. So far this school year, there have been at least 240 false reports of violence in schools around the country. Amy Klinger of the Educators School Safety Network tracks those incidents and says that's a nearly 600 percent increase in the last four years. You can create chaos, you can undermine the institution, you can make people not trust the school, not want to send their kids to school, be afraid. I mean, people do it because it works. It clearly works. There is no clear-cut motive behind the hoax calls, although an NPR analysis did find that schools in 28 states were apparently targeted earlier this year by the same individual. It's not clear if the hoax calls in Maine are part of that pattern, but the FBI and local authorities are investigating. For Kristen DeForge in Sanford, the experience didn't feel like a hoax. It's had a lingering impact on her and her daughter. She saw police with assault rifles. She was let out of her classroom with her hands on her head. I mean, everything she saw and felt and smelt and every experience she had that day led her to believe there was a shooter in the school that day. Swatting incidents have been a wake-up call for some schools, prompting them to revisit their safety plans. And Klinger warns these hoaxes have become so prevalent that all schools should prepare for one. For NPR News, I'm Nicola Grisco in Portland, Maine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, comedian Veer Das talks about his new Netflix special, Landing. Then in 20 minutes, why oral arguments before the Supreme Court have been getting longer and longer, sometimes more than doubling the allotted time for them. Coming up here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on climate change can't wait. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, it's a special hour where we munch on some of our favorite food segments from the past year. We make pasta from scratch in the studio. We get our walk on and discover the many uses of the versatile frying pan, and we learn just how hard it is to eat sustainably. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Six minutes and 54 seconds. That's how long it took for comedian Veer Das's life to turn upside down. Weeks had seven criminal complaints filed against me, being charged with sedition and defaming India on foreign soil. I was called a terrorist on three different news channels on the primetime news. That is an interesting conversation with your mother that evening. His crime? He released a video titled, I Come From Two Indias. In it, he described the contradictions within his home country. I come from an India that has the largest working population under 30 on the planet, but still listens to 75-year-old leaders with 150-year-old ideas. I come. Back in India, the backlash against him was swift. In addition to the criminal complaints and being branded a terrorist, he was accused of not being a pure Indian. But this wasn't Das's first time being labeled an outsider. He's carried that label ever since he was a young boy growing up in Lagos, Nigeria. Just when I'm nearing happiness in any country in the world, my parents can smell it and send me to another country. So just as I was nearing (laughs) happiness in India, public school in in Lagos, where I got my beaten every day because I was the guy from India. And just as soon as I made friends uh, in Lagos, off to private school in India, where I was the kid from Africa. I went to drama school in Galesburg, Illinois, which is the mecca of civilization, as we all know. It's just cornfield, college cornfield. So I was the kid from from India then. And then I I came in to try and work in Bollywood, where I was the guy from drama school. And now I work in America, where I'm the guy from Bollywood. So still very much an outsider. Has not changed. Yeah, no matter what. Because I was thinking if you're in India and you're from all these other places, people are saying that's the kid who thinks he's from India. Yeah, pretty much. You know, uh, and I think it takes you a while (laughs) to figure out, you know, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm too Indian for the West, but I'm too Western for India. Like, okay, check it out. I'm, I'm not so Indian that I would study to be a doctor. Mm-mm. No. But like, I'm Indian enough where I would never use a white doctor. Sorry. Is this... I would let an Indian engineer treat me before a white doctor. I don't need curative medicine. I need cheap, efficient solutions now. Like, I perform in America, so I worry about being shot in America. I think you need gun control legislation immediately. But I'm also Indian. So I want to be friends with at least that one guy who has a gun. (laughs) So, you know, it's just that conflict, basically. In his new Netflix special called Landing, Das recalls the night he was first labeled a terrorist in his country. I was in New York for the Emmys for a show called Veer Das for India, for which I already had a legal case. (laughs) By the time I walked the red carpet, I had seven more. So I just had to fake it, right? I was on the red carpet and they were like, Veer, how does it feel to be in America right now? And I'm like, well, it's good to be outside of India. I'm not going to lie. It's good to be traveling. Do you feel like people are excited for you back home? Well, they are not come. (laughs) What are you going to say if you win? Help? I don't know. Did it feel almost like people in India ghosted you? Like a whole country ghosted a comedian? No, I I, I think that assigns blame to people, which I would never do. It felt Mm. like I let down my country. And I'll only ever assign blame to myself. So in that moment, you're you're not angry. You're ridden with guilt. And whether that's, you know, uh, deserved guilt or undeserved guilt, you know, uh, only retrospect will tell. But at that moment, you're just like, man, I feel sad. I think I let people down. But in, in that situation, though, I mean, so 
you were seen then as someone in power? Because obviously someone got so upset at your monologue and about what you said that it motivated them to lash out at you. So, I mean, you were the threat in that case, weren't you? I don't think so. I think that's assigning too too much. Uh, that's lionizing yourself, which I, I wouldn't do. You know, I, I think I touched a chord with people and... I don't think artists get to decide when you stumble into a conversation, when you create a conversation. It touched an undeniable chord with people uh, and it formed a basis for further interactions. But I do not think comedians are a threat to anybody or anything. I don't think laughter is a threat. I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, nobody's ever mad at laughter. It makes no sense to be mad at a comic. What you're mad at is the agreement, um, if you're mad at anything, you know. And then what? You're supposed to go back to doing this again, like nothing ever happened. But it did. I mourned my whole career. I never thought I'd see you again. So now you and me, back in the same room together, this is an unplanned blessing that, that I could not be more grateful for in my heart. Has performing changed for you since? I, I think I had to just kind of go within myself for a while and make sure that it was at least two months or three months before I, I wrote my first joke. The tough thing is to never paint yourself as a victim or a hero and also not be a comedian who, I, I think we all know sometimes comedians can get stuck in a feedback loop, right? Where they're reacting to their last special in this special, et cetera, et cetera. So to avoid that as well. So I set a rule when I was doing this special, which is your content may have become controversy, but controversy will never become your content. So if you've seen the special, you know, I just kind of say a video went up. Here's what happened immediately after. And here's why I was a moron at every level through dealing with it. And here's what's funny about that. And hopefully you resonate with stumbling and this makes you feel better about who you are. So it didn't change anything but looking for the funny. It really drove me to look for the funny in a bad situation. Tonight, New York City, I'd love to take you home. Do you want to go home with me? Yeah? Lovely. Your home. I might not be allowed back into mine. Um. Are you worried at all, Veer, that you'll always be the Indian comedian, not just comedian, Veer Das? Does that matter to you? I feel honored to be the Indian comedian. You know, uh, at the end of the day, I feel like there's a, there's a vacancy for an authentic Indian perspective on the global circuit. There's 1.3 something billion people whose perspective isn't being talked about globally. And I want to be that perspective. So I'm happy to be the Indian comic Veeradas. And hopefully I'll make you laugh using the Indian accent as a perspective instead of just being a local punchline. That's comedian Veeradas. His Netflix special is called Landing Beer. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, man. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskew. It's WBUR in the forecast. It'll be increasing clouds today. Highs in the lower 30s right now. It is 20 degrees in Boston at 759. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org 
or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More than a dozen people are dead in Buffalo, New York, dozens nationwide after winter storms and blizzards leave thousands without power. It's Monday, December 26th, and this is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the historic storm in Buffalo that dropped nearly four feet of snow, 43 inches recorded at Buffalo's airport. Also this hour, Chinese citizens call on Apple to do more to help them evade Chinese government censorship. There's a deep partnership between companies like Apple and the Chinese government, and you gotta do what they want. And the culinary historian who helped create a menu for celebrating Kwanzaa, drawing on multiple black traditions. You can go all in if you want, but you can also just raise a glass, pour a libation. It's not rigid. Forecast says it'll be increasing clouds today, highs right around the freezing mark. It's 8.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A powerful winter storm is being blamed on the deaths of at least 13 people in New York State. Heavy snow, high winds, and freezing temperatures have crippled the Buffalo region, shutting down many roadways and trapping people in their vehicles. Governor Kathy Hochul says the storm is also paralyzing emergency response efforts. It is going to a war zone, and the vehicles along the sides of the roads are shocking. It's not just small vehicles. It is literally snow plows. Hochul says the scale of the storm will be worse than that of the famous blizzard of 1977. Today I'm here to say that is now in the history books. We have surpassed the scale of that storm in its intensity, the longevity, the ferocity of the winds. Videos on social media show vehicles buried in massive snowdrifts. The storm has also caused widespread power outages in the Buffalo region. The National Weather Service says snow totals stand at nearly four feet in some areas. The severe weather is also impacting holiday travel across the U.S. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports thousands of people are stranded at airports trying to make their way home. On Christmas Day, more than 3,000 U.S. flights were canceled and nearly 7,000 were delayed, according to the tracking site FlightAware. Patrick Krangle said his plans were canceled four times as he tried to travel from San Francisco to Buffalo for the holidays. It's depressing, but you just try and be grateful that you're safe, your family members are safe. Just hope that everyone here gets to where they want to go safely and in a timely manner. Buffalo airport officials posted on social media that the airport will remain closed until Tuesday at 11 a.m. Maria Andrusevich, NPR News. China's military spent Christmas Day carrying out exercises near the island of Taiwan. NPR's Emily Fang reports the exercises followed Congress passing a broad spending bill that included money from the U.S. to help Taiwan defend itself from Chinese aggression. 
China's Army Eastern Theater Command released photos of the drills and said it was provoked by, quote, escalating collusion between the U.S. and Taiwan. A Chinese Army spokesperson said, quote, the command's troops will take all necessary measures to firmly defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. China sees Taiwan as part of its own territory rather than a separate country and has said repeatedly it would even use military force to take control of the island if needed in the future. The drills came the day after President Biden signed into law the funding bill, which gives $2 billion in loans to Taiwan so it can buy arms to defend itself against China. Emily Fang, NPR News. Financial markets across Asia traded mixed today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. A heads up, if you are traveling around Boston today, there are a few things to keep in mind. Since Christmas Day is observed today, the T is running a Sunday schedule while the commuter rails on a weekend schedule. If you're driving, keep in mind street parking is free, so no need to feed the meters. Municipal buildings like City Hall are closed today, and trash pickup is delayed in some neighborhoods. Massachusetts has millions of dollars in unclaimed property belonging to individuals, businesses, and even nonprofits. State Treasurer Deb Goldberg says she wants to make sure it's returned to rightful owners. She says her office is focusing on reaching out to nonprofits. We want to make sure that the nonprofits have all the resources they can possibly access in order to help others. That's their mission. So we wanted to shine a light on this at this time of year and help them do what they do so well. Goldberg says last year the state treasury processed more than 122,000 claims and returned more than $163 million in property. You can check if you have any at findmassmoney.com. Two police officers are recovering from injuries they suffered while trying to detain a pair of alleged shoplifters in West Springfield. Mass Live reports one officer was run over by a getaway car as it pulled away from a stop and shop. The other officer's cruiser was rammed when they tried to block the car's path. The suspects are facing multiple charges, including attempted murder. New research from the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Woods Hole finds even though the Arctic is warming faster than the global average, the region is absorbing as much carbon pollution as it's giving off, at least for now. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. Climate scientist Jennifer Watts spent the last couple years worrying that wildfires and melting permafrost in the Arctic had turned the region into a net source of carbon pollution. But her new data suggests that that hasn't happened yet. Forests in the far north are still sucking up lots of CO2, but they're under threat from climate change. They're experiencing drought. They're experiencing warmer winters. And the precipitation patterns are so unpredictable. So it's a bad combination. She says the top threat to northern forests is wildfires, which are becoming larger and more frequent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. 
donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. In sports, the Celtics are celebrating a win at the Garden last night, what the Boston Globe is calling the team's best game of the season. Celtics defeated the Milwaukee Bucks by 21 points. Final score was 139 to 118. Jason Tatum led the team with 41 points. The Celtics play at home again tomorrow night against the Houston Rockets. Bruins will also compete tomorrow. They'll be in Canada to face off against the Ottawa Senators. Bruins will be looking for their fifth straight win. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds today throughout the day with temperatures right around the low 30s. Tonight, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the lower 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, temperatures finally above freezing in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds with highs in the upper 30s and then warmer towards the end of the week. Right now, it is 20 degrees in Boston. The time is 8.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. More than 30 people have died because of the winter storm that has knocked out power and stranded travelers across most of the United States. And many of those deaths are concentrated in or near Buffalo, New York. The mayor of Buffalo is Byron Brown, and he's on the line. Mayor, welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. How is your city doing now that we're on the back end, it would seem, of this storm? The city is tough, resilient. We continue to focus on life safety, getting to stranded motorists that are stranded in their vehicles, emergency medical service calls at homes, and working with our power company, National Grid, to assist them in getting to power stations to restore power to homes. Uh, There are people that have been without without power uh, since Friday. Uh, Temperatures have dipped to, in some cases, minus 22 degrees below zero with the wind chill. Uh, We've been able to um, help National Grid uh, cut the power outages in Buffalo in half at one time over 20,000 people without power in the city of Buffalo. That number is now below 10,000, and we will continue uh, to work aggressively and strategically with National Grid all day today to continue to reduce that number and get everyone's power restored. Mayor Brown, you mentioned motorists stranded in their vehicles. We are a few days into this. Is it your impression there may be people out there who've been stuck in their cars for days? Don't know the answer to that. We are going by car by car. We know that some vehicles have been abandoned. Uh, We have literally, uh, since Friday, uh, rescued uh, over several hundred people uh, in a variety of different circumstances. Uh, Police, uh, fire, our uh, plow drivers continue that work. In some cases, because of impassable streets, Uh, We've had to set up strike teams uh, working with plows uh, to get to stranded vehicles uh, to check them to see if people are inside uh, and then uh, get those vehicles towed uh, so that our um, uh, life-saving operations uh, and street plowing operations can continue. How soon do you think the city might be back to normal? 
you know, this has been uh, called a generational storm, a once-in-a-generation storm, yeah. uh, sustained blizzard conditions uh, for days, um, uh, blowing and uh, drifting snow, uh, in some cases over 48 inches of snow uh, that has fallen, um, uh, trees and power lines, poles that have come down. Uh, we're hoping uh, to get back to normalcy uh, this week, uh, but this has been a very devastating and difficult storm, unlike anything uh, that even the city of Buffalo is used to getting. I guess the airport is not even open yet, is it? Uh, the airport is not open. The airport uh, uh, will not open uh, today. Uh, so people who are traveling out of and traveling to Buffalo uh, will not be able to get out of Buffalo International Airport today. Byron Brown is the mayor of Buffalo, New York. Mayor, good luck to you and your city in the days ahead. Thank you very much. When a man hung banners on a Beijing overpass in October to protest the government, an army of censors wiped it from the Chinese Internet. Some people got around that by using Apple's AirDrop, which allows iPhones to communicate directly with other iPhones. It's one of the few remaining ways to share information without censorship in China. Or it was. NPR's John Ruich reports on the pressure facing a leading American company. Outside Apple's glass-walled visitor center at its headquarters in Cupertino, California, a graduate student from China is lying in a sleeping bag on the sidewalk, bundled up against the chilly air. How do you feel right now? <sighs> a little bit hungry, yes. But except that, I feel, feel good. Wang Han was on day five of a week-long hunger strike against Apple. Apple is colluding with the Chinese government to surprise our basic human rights. After that protest on the bridge in Beijing, Apple made it harder to send files widely through AirDrop. A company spokesperson said the change was part of an operating system update in December and aims to prevent things like people sending naked photos to other passengers on airplanes. But Wang is dubious. So we think uh, the, China, uh, the Apple had got some order from the Chinese government. NPR emailed Apple to ask if China requested the change. The company has not replied. For Wang, the problem with Apple in China is bigger than just AirDrop. There's been unrest among workers at a factory in China that makes iPhones, highlighting difficult conditions. And for years, Apple's kept tools that help people circumvent censorship in China off the App Store inside the country. Uh, we are here to support the people in China for their courage. And he's not alone. Uh, right now, the next day, about a dozen people gathered with Wang to show support in the pouring rain. One of them was Zhou Fengsuo. He's a human rights activist and former student leader during the Tiananmen Square protests 33 years ago. You know, this is the most exciting time for me since 1989. For the first time, you know, we are hearing people's call for political change. He's referring to the bridge protest and street demonstrations around China last month against the government's tough COVID rules. Apple, he says, is not helping. They are calling for freedom. But a U.S. company like Apple, the most profitable company in the world, and they are aiding CCP in restricting this voice. Multinationals have always had to walk a fine line in China, and it's not unusual to come under fire for things like factory conditions and pollution. But the political risks have been rising, with souring U.S.-China relations as the backdrop. 
And Zhou says Wang Han's hunger strike represents something new. This protest connected all the issues together. For me, I think the most important change is that younger generation, you know, like today's hunger strike Wang Han, they are picking up the torch. Apple so far has not commented on Wang's hunger strike, which ended two weeks ago. Doug Guthrie worked for Apple in China for several years and advised company executives on Chinese politics. He says Apple's supply chains in China are the key to its profitability. There's a deep partnership between companies like Apple and, and the Chinese government, and you got to do what they want. The company has moved some assembly to places like India and Vietnam, but Guthrie calls that hand waving about diversifying. Relocating supply chains will take years, and he says that means Apple is beholden to China. And now it has to contend with pressure from Chinese citizens who aren't happy about that. John Ruich, NPR News. The justices of the Supreme Court have been known in recent decades for their discipline when it comes to talking. But of late, they've been talking and talking and talking, sometimes more than doubling the amount of time allotted for the oral arguments where they hear out cases from the lawyers involved. We're going to talk about this with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, who listens to them talk. Hey there, Nina. (laughs) Hey there, Steve. Okay, you've been listening to oral arguments for decades. How did the question and answer sessions used to work? Well, in most cases, each side is allotted a half hour, though in some unusual cases where there are multiple major issues, for instance, the court allocates more time. And to keep the lawyers to time, a white light goes on in the lectern when they have just five minutes left, and a red light goes on when time's up. Mm -hmm. During my long lifetime of covering the court and four chief justices, they were very strict about holding lawyers to their allotted time. The late Chief Justice William Rehnquist even cut lawyers off mid-sentence when that red light went on. Take a listen. Parents are going to fail to act. Thank you, Ms. Beeson. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Olson, you have four minutes remaining. That would not exist. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Boyce, we'll hear from you. The scouting program. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Uh, Mr. Davidson, we'll give you a minute. Uh, you don't actually have quite that much, but we'll be generous. <laughs> That, that sounds like one of those broadcast interviews where we've got to cut away for the commercial or, or, or whatever. <laughs> but that's the way it was. What's happening now? This term, we have had, as usual, most cases scheduled for 60 minutes total, a half hour on each side. In some cases, the court allotted five more minutes on each side. And in three important cases so far this term, where there are a large number of important issues, they've allocated 90 minutes for argument. And yet, the justices ran over in almost every case. So the overtime is longer than the whole arguments (laughs) used to be. Yes, that's right. What accounts for the jump? Other than a lack of discipline, you mean? Um, Basically, it dates back to the pandemic lockdown. Remember that the justices continued to hear arguments, but by phone, because they thought Zoom wasn't safe from crashers. And when you hear arguments by phone, you can't see each other. So to prevent interrupting each other constantly, each justice asked questions for several minutes in order of seniority. And when they returned to the bench in 2021, They could now see each other, of course, but instead of returning to the old discipline, they started to speak longer. And the system that now exists at the court is that for however long a lawyer has, let's say a half hour, he or she faces the basic free-for-all that used to exist pre-pandemic. But instead of the oral argument ending there, the way they used to, 
They do a whole second round with each justice going in order of seniority, and the chief justice, just to be sure, even after that, asks if everyone's done. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But is there something substantive that changes in what happens in these cases when the justices allow the arguments to go on longer and longer and longer and hear more and more points? They seem to think that there is some value in this. Um, They like this because they don't leave the argument with some of their questions unanswered. And therefore, the chief justice does not impose the discipline of the clock, even when the justices are more than an hour over the allotted time. NPR's Neon Totenberg finishing this interview right on time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the food historian who teamed up with her sister to make a full Kwanzaa menu that draws on multiple black traditions on this first day of Kwanzaa. Later this hour, trying to better define fierce windstorms in the Midwest. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're going to take a look at corporate monopolies. They dominate many industries, including beef. So you have cattle ranchers going broke while consumers are paying all-time record prices for beef. It's failed consumers on one end of the supply chain, and it's failed the American family farmer and rancher on the other. More Than Money, a special series on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds today, highs in the lower 30s. Mostly cloudy overnight tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine, highs in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds with gusty winds at times, highs in the upper 30s. Thursday, mostly sunny skies, highs in the mid-40s. And Friday should be a mix of sun and clouds with highs right around 50 degrees. Right now, it is 20 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from the Levelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. It is officially Kwanzaa season. The week-long celebration of African-American culture and heritage runs through New Year's Day. Traditionally, the holiday is celebrated with candle lighting and reflecting on the principles of Kwanzaa, like creativity and self-determination. But what do you eat on Kwanzaa? Tanya Hopkins and Kenya Parham have some delicious suggestions. They are the creators of a new online miniseries for the Food Network called The Kwanzaa Menu. And you two know one another. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. We are sisters. We're Um, sisters. Not identical sisters, but we are sisters, yes. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) Yes, we are. 
Kenya says their connection to Kwanzaa goes way back. Their parents are educators who taught them a lot about Black history and Black pride. We've been celebrating Kwanzaa my entire life. You know, I joke with folks all the time that we come from a family where we've been dropping Kwanzaa banners from our house, our suburban homes, since I was born. So we we are very unapologetically <laughs> proud to be Black family. And everybody's Black experience is different. That's why Kenya's sister wanted the Kwanzaa menu to broaden how Black American food is defined. The Kwanzaa recipes that Tanya has developed are nutritious, modern, and a little unconventional. One of the favorite things we loved doing together since Kenya was a kid was baking things, right? And so I yeah. came up with Kwanzaa cookie recipes. We bake Christmas cookies too, but I don't know, for some reason, the Kwanzaa cookie became more What's of a What's a Kwanzaa thing. cookie? <laughs> Tanya uses almond flour to make her Kwanzaa cookies, and she sweetens them with maple syrup. You can nibble on one after crunching into her black-eyed pea fritters with savory, smoky sesame sauce or her good deeds greens, as she calls them. You make those with friends or family to honor the Kwanzaa principle of collective responsibility. Kwanzaa is a relatively young holiday. It was developed in the 1960s by the activist and professor Milana Karenga. And it's not linked to an iconic dish like a Thanksgiving turkey or a Christmas ham. When I was asked to write the entry for Kwanzaa and foods associated with Kwanzaa for the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink, in America, there were a lot of questions. People were like, are there foods associated with Kwanzaa? And it's like, yes and no. There's not like a, a an established official thing. How did you set out to pay tribute to those traditional dishes that we would think of as like classic soul food, but expanding far beyond that to develop a menu that incorporated the wide range of culinary traditions in the African diaspora and make some dishes that were appropriate for this time of reflection that Kwanzaa affords. How do you do that? You know, Black people in America, even though we're often diminished or shrunk down or homogenized, it's like we come from many different national origins, cultures, religions, and there's food that goes with that. And then understanding how Kwanzaa was a creative synthesis of harvest rituals from throughout the African continent, it just made natural sense to find and incorporate the star dishes that are special occasion, but also everyday things that represent the culture. And the sisters made every dish on the Kwanzaa menu plant-based without calling them that. We intentionally did not label them vegan or plant-based, y'all, yeah. because uh, people have, you know, Their aversions to the right, labels, right? right. right? Yeah. yeah. So They decide, oh, know. I'm not going to eat that, you know, and it's <laughs> That's like... That's the vegan thing. But Kenya, who eats a vegan diet, says plant-based foods can be found throughout Black culinary history. It flipped my consciousness upside down to realize that, yes, soul food is what we are told, you know, it is the fried chicken, the greens, the candy yams. But there are so many Black cultures that embrace plant-based eating that you start to question, well, where did this narrative of quote-unquote soul food come from? And why does it continuously get pushed on us that this is what you eat as Black folks? We really wanted to kind of shatter that with this project. Every recipe on the Kwanzaa menu draws from Black food traditions that crisscross the Atlantic with the slave trade. The dishes borrow from the Caribbean, West Africa, the American South, and they're meant to be enjoyed by the whole family, even the drinks, like the aromatic bright red beverage Tanya makes with hibiscus. 
It's a dual recipe that starts as a mocktail. A two-in-one drink. A two-in-one. Yes. The hot, you know, mold, you know, aromatic, red, vibrant holiday drink. But it also can be served chilled and we convert it to a cocktail with some bourbon created by Black people in America. And also (laughs) we, we top it with some sparkling wine, which... Black people were the first wine stewards in America. Um, And we um, raise a glass because libations is an important part of the ritual. But I love it because it's a historically informed, ancestrally inspired, and very culturally rooted drink, very intentional. And it's for everybody and everybody, including those who came before us. It's the medium through which we invite the ancestors into the Kwanzaa ceremony. So that's why that recipe is my favorite. Yeah, because you're clearly doing this for other people to share the traditions that you have grown up with. Yeah, I think that Kwanzaa, it's kind of complex. And I think that it can be off-putting for folks that, that, and I think what we're trying to do is be like, yeah, you can celebrate Kwanzaa relatively simply. You can go all in if you want, but you can also just raise a glass, pour a libation. It's not rigid. Absolutely. And I think by calling it a blueprint, we really leave room for people at home to make it their own. You know, Kwanzaa is a little different is inventive and creative and, um, And collective, because also, you know, there can be a burden around holidays, like, oh my God, you know, where one person is expected to do their signature dishes for everybody. It's like, no, you come in there, you wash your hands, you roll up your sleeves, you, you work together, you prepare these things together. And I think that lessens the burden and makes it also fun and inviting and social and collective as well. Rachel with Tanya Hopkins and her sister Kenya Parham, who created the Kwanzaa Menu. The digital series is streaming now on foodnetwork.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, amid sharp criticism of its ban on women in higher education, the Taliban goes even further, banning women in Afghanistan from working at NGOs. Also, the designer creating a statue to honor Henrietta Lacks that'll take the place of a sculpture of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in Roanoke, Virginia. Remember, join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. An advocacy group says more than 100 migrants who arrived outside the vice president's residence in Washington over the weekend came from Texas. NPR's Julia Hayward has more. Three busloads of migrants arrived outside the Naval Observatory in Washington, which is the official residence of the vice president. Some were not properly dressed for the sub-freezing temperatures at the time. 
Governors from some border states are sending migrants to the nation's capital to protest the Biden administration's proposed lifting of a pandemic-era policy known as Title 42 that makes it easier to deport migrants. In a letter to the president last Tuesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said his state is ill-equipped to house the thousands of migrants who cross into his state every day. The migrants who arrived at Harris's doorstep on Christmas Eve weren't outside for long. They were greeted by local volunteers who helped them find shelter and figure out their next steps. Julia Hayward, NPR News. Last week, 19 Republican state attorneys general asked the U.S. Supreme Court to keep Title 42 in place. In response, the White House asked Chief Justice John Roberts to keep the restrictions in effect through at least Christmas Day. More than a dozen deaths are reported in western New York following a weekend blizzard. Hundreds of motorists were stranded in the Buffalo area. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Improvements to a sewage pumping station in Worcester will cost the city an estimated $6 million. State officials ordered the upgrades after malfunction at the station earlier this year dumped millions of gallons of wastewater into Lake Quinsigamond. The Telegram and Gazette reports the city still does not know what caused the spill. A homeless shelter in Boston is building a new affordable housing development. The St. Francis House says the 19-story building near Chinatown and downtown Crossing will include more than 100 units. St. Francis House tells the Boston Herald it plans to break ground in the spring. A Boston-based arts organization has plans to spotlight Puerto Rican art. It plans to use a $700,000 grant from the Mellon Foundation to assist creatives in the Northeast and Puerto Rico. WBUR's Lauren Williams has more. After noticing a lack of representation, Elsa Mosquera Sternberg started Agora Cultural Architects to support Latino talent in New England. Now, Agora has won a grant for its new project, Bori Corridor, which will help bridge the gap between Puerto Rican artists living on the mainland and the island. The talent in Puerto Rico is out of this world. Um, the world today speaks Puerto Rican, <laughs> thanks to that money, you know, but it's hard to bring them over. The project consists of building an online map identifying Puerto Rican cultural centers in the Northeast and hosting Puerto Rican artists on a performance tour in New England. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. Today is the first day of Kwanzaa. The week-long cultural holiday honors African-American heritage. Celebrations in Boston include three days of festivities by the Boston Public Library. They begin tomorrow and take place at the library's Roxbury, Parker Hill, and Eggleston Square branches. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. In sports, Celtics are celebrating a win at the Garden last night in what the Boston Globe calls the team's best game of the season. The Celtics defeated the Milwaukee Bucks by 21 points, final score 139 to 118. Jason Tatum led the team with 41 points. The Celtics will play again at home tomorrow night against the Houston Rockets. Bruins will also compete tomorrow. They'll be in Canada to face off against the Ottawa Senators. That team is looking for its fifth straight win, the Bruins, that being. In the forecast, it'll be clouds increasing throughout the day today. High temperatures right around the freezing mark. Mostly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. 
Tomorrow, sunny skies. Temperatures finally above freezing in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs in the upper 30s and warmer towards the end of the week. Right now, 21 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the George Gunt Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. On a visit to Afghanistan last summer, we naturally did all we could to hear from women. Many girls were out of school. Many women were pushed out of the workplace. But some still worked and others held out hope. More than one told us they had applied for jobs at international NGOs, non-governmental organizations, which insisted on employing women as they had before. Now, the Taliban who rule Afghanistan have banned women from working there, too. One of the affected groups is the Norwegian Refugee Council, which has suspended its operations in Afghanistan. Its Secretary General is Jan Egeland, who's on the line via Skype. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. I will mention that I heard a lot about the Norwegian Refugee Council's work when in Afghanistan a few months ago. What were you doing there? Well, we were working across the country and we have been working there for decades. So we have 1,400 aid workers on the ground. We provide shelter, water, sanitation, food, emergency services and education, primary education to boys and girls. We're all over the country and we were there before the takeover and we were there after the takeover of, of the Taliban up until this point we've done our work. What role did women play in all of that? Essential, essential, as they do all over the world. We have 470 hardworking, committed, qualified female uh, aid workers. They are the ones who uh, are, are, are the contacts with women and children in Afghanistan. There is a lot of single mother households, for example. They are the only ones who can can contact them. So when the Taliban tell us to only work with males, it is the same as as saying you cannot continue because we will not continue. We cannot continue with males only. You must have had a debate, though, about whether to try continuing to do what little you could do without women. Did you did you have to have some discussion about this? Yeah, well, we did. We did. But uh, but uh, then it took uh, a few minutes uh, to analyze this and we then said there are two reasons we cannot do it. One is that the quality of our work would drop immediately and we couldn't even reach directly women. So that was a red line for us. The other one was also we, we would disintegrate as a principled and good organization and a good employer if some organizations now, which I would really recommend against, stumble along with males only, they would set a horrific precedence for all of us. So I would really warn against that. I want to mention that before the last few weeks, it seemed like 
the question of women and girls in Afghanistan was moving in a positive direction, by which I mean, even though the Taliban had banned girls from many levels of school, there was clearly a kind of democratic debate, a democratic insistence on this in many parts of the country. Many localities had allowed girls back in school. It seemed like some progress was being made against the resistance of the government, but that has clearly changed. The government has cracked down in new ways. Is there a way to push back on this? Yes, this has to be revoked, rescinded, reversed completely. Uh, it, it's been a, a bad uh, couple of months now. Uh, women was were not allowed to go to university anymore. Some regions we've had progress. Some regions have been much more difficult. We're now going province by province and negotiating, we hope, to resume work with male and female workforce working uh, equally. Uh, we will uh, we will completely adhere to the traditional uh, traditions of her using the hijab, of separating males and females in the workplace, even having male guardians on longer travel. Th those traditions we adhered to, but this ban is un-Islamic, it's un-Afghan, it's, uh, it's something we have to fight. Are you hearing, as is true with schools, with girls in school, are you hearing even from some more conservative members of society who are acknowledging this is a mistake? Well, we we understand that this is hotly debated in in the Taliban. I met with them in Kabul and other places in Afghanistan. I met with them as they came to Oslo. They promised that females would be able to work with us. They promised education for girls. They have really gone back on their word here, and we hope that common sense will prevail. And we urge everybody who have influence on the Taliban to help us uh, revoke this. Very briefly, have you heard any formal response to your decision to shut down from the government? No, they, not, not yet, but we hear that they are willing to now discuss with the UN how to, how to possibly reach a compromise. Jan Egelin, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, thank you very much. Thank you. In recent years, the state of Virginia has removed a number of Confederate monuments, among them a statue of General Robert E. Lee in Roanoke, Virginia, which was taken down in 2020. In its place, a new statue honors Henrietta Lacks. Lacks was a Roanoke woman who was being treated for cervical cancer in 1951. Doctors took samples of her cancer cells without her consent, and she died later that year at age 31. Her lines of cells have helped with cancer research and the development of many vaccines. Her cells regenerate every 24 hours, which was never before seen. Bryce Cobbs is the artist commissioned to design the Lax statue. It was a very, very long process. I don't know how many pieces of paper I threw away <laughs> trying to capture what I really wanted to capture in my head. Mr. Cobbs teamed up with Roanoke's Hidden Histories, an organization working to raise awareness of local black history. Capturing Lax took some input from her relatives. The family was super helpful. They offered the sculptor, Larry Bechtel, um, assistance with capturing her likeness by using other family members' resemblances in order to combine a lot of the elements to capture her likeness in that way. 
Now, even though her cells are still used in laboratories today, neither she nor her descendants were ever compensated for the theft of her genetic material. Cobbs hopes his work will allow the Lacks family to reclaim the story of their ancestor and shed new light on the woman she was. Seeing a black woman in this prominent stance, permanently immortalized in this sculpture, would just inspire a lot of people in the community, honestly. So I really wanted to have a distinguished, powerful pose, and I wanted her looking up. I always remember like looking up as being something like a feeling of proudness and of having that confidence in yourself and the strength in who you are. We'll see the results before long because sculptor Larry Bechtel will work off Cobb's design. The statue is set to be unveiled next fall. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the increasingly dangerous and destructive storms in the Midwest and the effort to define the specific weather formation known as a derecho. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny to start today, then cloudy later in the day with highs in the lower 30s. All clouds overnight tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny, highs in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a mix of sun and clouds with moderate winds, highs in the upper 30s. Thursday, mostly sunny, mid-40s. And Friday should be partly sunny with highs right around 50 degrees. Right now, 21 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products. Located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Now business news, the landlord of a building in Lowell is suing Boston-based internet provider Starry Inc. for more than $100,000. The building owner tells the Boston Business Journal Starry hasn't been keeping up with rent payments and failed to vacate a space before its lease was up. This after Starry laid off half its employees earlier this year. This year's cranberry harvest is coming to a close, and while cranberries are Massachusetts' biggest food crop, the Bay State area follows short of being the country's leading cranberry grower. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. The worst part is the one state that obliterates Massachusetts' output isn't even known for growing cranberries. Wisconsin's considered the dairy state, obviously, and we're dwarfed by uh, the dairy industry here. That's Tom Lochner of the Wisconsin State Cranberry Growers Association. He says about 60% of the cranberries you eat are produced in his state. And I'd like to say, uh, yeah, Wisconsin berries are, are obviously better. But probably at the end of the day, most people can't tell the difference between a variety of a fruit that's grown here in Wisconsin versus what's grown on the East Coast. Other notable cranberry-producing states include Oregon and New Jersey. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. The winter storm of recent days was worse than usual in many places, but of course, severe cold and severe weather are common in the Midwest and on the Plains. One year ago this month, the fierce winds of a derecho were part of storms that hit Iowa and nearby states, killing at least five people and leaving devastated neighborhoods. 
Now, scientists are working to figure out what future derechos might look like. Iowa Public Radio's Katie Pikus reports. December 15, 2021 was an unseasonably warm day, record highs in the 70s in some parts of Iowa, when a derecho blew through. The widespread long-lived windstorm hit Matt Thompson's seed and fertilizer application business more than 70 miles northwest of Des Moines. There was a building there. You could see the pad still sitting there, the gravel. That's where one of the buildings was. Lost Grove Ag Services lost five of its six buildings. Thompson recalls getting to the business early the next morning to survey the damage. And when the sun came up, it was, we didn't know what we were going to do. It was pretty devastating to see. It was unbelievable. I'll never forget that. This derecho was unique, the first recorded in December anywhere in the U.S. Wind gusts exceeded 80 miles per hour. The straight-line winds and tornadoes that accompanied left nearly $2 billion in damage stretching from Kansas to Michigan. Iowa, in particular, has been caught in the crosshairs of derechos over the last couple of years. Bill Gallus is a meteorology professor at Iowa State University. He says derechos thrive on warm, humid air in the atmosphere's lower levels, creating thunderstorms, something the Midwest often has. Those thunderstorms are able to tap into very strong winds happening higher up in the atmosphere, even up toward the jet stream, so that they can bring those strong winds down to the ground. That is what happened in the recent December 2021 derecho in the Midwest. There isn't a lot of research on derechos, so scientists say it's hard to know how they'll fare in a warming Earth. Gallus says there's more energy in the atmosphere as it warms, and that could pave the way for more powerful and more frequent derechos. But scientists can't say for sure, and some attribute the uncertainty to the fact that there's no official database for derechos like there is for hurricanes or tornadoes where they can look for historic trends. That's something the National Weather Service is working on. Meteorologist Matthew Elliott says derechos have no formal definition. When you hear the word derecho, it's got to trigger something. It's got to trigger that this is the worst windstorm that I'm going to see. Once they have a label and better data, Elliot says it'll make forecasting derechos easier and will give people more warning to get to safety. The National Weather Service has improved the alert system. That's after a highly destructive derecho hit the Midwest back in August 2020, killing four people. Now when a severe thunderstorm warning is issued with strong winds of at least 80 miles per hour, people get an alert on their phones. But Walker Ashley, a disaster geographer at Northern Illinois University, says more should be done with urban planning and building codes. We build at the bare minimum standards in this country, and that has all sorts of consequences from heating costs to damage within extreme damaging wind events. After all, Ashley says as cities grow and sprawl out, they're putting more people in harm's way of extreme weather, like derechos. For NPR News, I'm Katie Pikus in Ames, Iowa. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. And you're, and you're listening to Morning Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up next, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. Later today at noon, it's Here and Now. And Here and Now co-host Scott Tong is here to tell us about what they're going to be covering this holiday season. Scott, welcome. Jack, good morning. Um, 
We're going to talk more about the winter blizzard, which yep. in Buffalo could be the worst in history when this is all sorted out. 17 fatalities so far. Firefighters could not respond because of the conditions, and that's the first time in Buffalo Fire Department history, so we'll get more on that. Today is the 50th anniversary since Harry S. Truman died. We will look back at his Truman Doctrine speech. Mm. And if we remember the global challenges of that day, a Soviet Union trying to expand its influence and embolden China, arguably some of those challenges are still with us. And we'll have his grandson on to talk about that. And we go to El Paso to see how migrants are faring on the border this holiday. And a look back at the innovation breakthroughs of 2022 with... um, some big cancer-fighting moments. So that's on our show uh, midday today. All right. Stay tuned to WBUR for more on that. Scott, thanks. Thanks, Jack. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting properties across Massachusetts, adventure is in their nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org explore. As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it'll help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Did your Christmas baking include inflated eggs? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, using relationship intelligence to help dealmakers in venture capital, banking, and consulting to find, manage, and close deals faster. Affinity.co slash Marketplace. From Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. First, if you're flying back home today after visiting loved ones over the holiday weekend, Practice your patience. The sum of all flight delays and cancellations is already in the thousands this morning, heaping on top of a weekend of flight disruptions brought on by that deadly winter storm that's still inflicting misery along the eastern half of the country. Many airlines are waiving change fees if you have the flexibility to rebook rebook your flight. Let's do the numbers. While markets in the U.S., Europe, and Hong Kong are closed to observe the Christmas holiday, other markets in Asia closed higher following modest gains last week on Wall Street. The S&P 500 index was up six-tenths percent on Friday, but still posted its third consecutive weekly decline. It's down nearly 20 percent for the year. Stocks are down, but prices are up this year, as we know. And if you did any baking this holiday weekend, you may have noticed that eggs have gotten more expensive, too. The average price of a dozen grade-A eggs has almost doubled this year to about $3.60. Part of that is because the price of chicken feed is up, but the real culprit, say experts, is the avian flu, which has infected over 57 million hens in the U.S. Here's Marketplace's Justin Ho. Avian flu has been flaring up throughout the year, starting around last spring. That was the first time we had egg prices spike, and then we've had recurring outbreaks of it. That's Daniel Sumner, a professor of agricultural economics at UC Davis. He says eggs aren't like steak or fancy wines, which people might cut back on if prices rise. For a lot of people, eggs are a staple. So when prices go up, people tend to buy them anyway. And that drives the price higher and higher. And that has to happen because the supplies are more limited. The agriculture department says grocery stores have been cutting back on promotions. And any they are doing are limited to organic and cage-free eggs. 
Phil Lempert is a food industry analyst and editor of supermarketguru.com. So if you look at free-range and cage-free, some of those producers are much smaller farms, uh, so they have not been affected as much by bird flu. But Limpert says those make up a tiny share of overall egg production, and they tend to be even more expensive. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. There were a lot of non-spending-related items in that budget bill that cleared Congress last week. One item, an effort to prevent stuff stolen in brick-and-mortar retail stores from getting sold for profit online. Amazon, Facebook, and other corners of the web where you can buy stuff from lots of different sources will need to verify the IDs of high-volume sellers. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Prisma Sassy from Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. It's zero trust with zero exceptions. More at paloaltonetworks.com. And by JLL, a commercial real estate leader whose local experts bring global expertise to solve today's complex challenges. Learn more at JLL.com. JLL, see a brighter way. Well, this week, we're taking stock of some of the big economic events of the year. Today, we focus on energy from widespread power outages to sky high energy prices in Europe. It's been a busy year in the energy sector. And Marketplace's energy correspondent, Andy Euler, is here to stroll down short term memory lane with us. He joins us from Austin, Texas. Hi, Andy. Hey, Nova. So, all right, hit us with some highlights. Winter storm Yuri in February was responsible for almost 250 deaths and left millions of Texans without power for days, myself included. And it really brought the conversation about the electricity grid reliability here in Texas to the forefront. I was filing stories from my cousin's closet because I didn't have power in my house for about a week here in Austin. And what's interesting about it is it led us reporters to sort of dig in and try to figure out what happened ask policymakers what they were doing to make sure it didn't happen again. Now, it's been a mild winter thus far this time, so the jury's still out on whether the Texas grid is actually fixed, as the governor and a lot of politicians like to claim, but we'll see. And another big story this year for energy coverage is the Russia invading Ukraine, and what's that meant for the global energy market, right? That's exactly right. Uh, I, I feel like I've been reporting on this story in all of its iterations since about March. Europe is still absolutely dealing with the repercussions of it. Cutting off Russian oil and gas, which geopolitically was the right thing to do, given that country's aggression, that sent European countries scrambling to try to figure out how they were going to make up for that energy. Germany now has some floating liquefied natural gas terminals, which are super, super interesting. That's going to help get gas used to heat homes to citizens there. But they're certainly not out of the woods. The key here, though, is that this geopolitical posturing might have galvanized Europe and others to try to shore up energy resources in the future, ones that don't necessarily depend on unreliable actors like Russia. And switching gears, Andy, did your reporting take you anywhere unexpected or fun this year? Yeah, it's funny. I just finished a story about nuclear fusion, which became news when the Energy Department announced that a lab in California had created net positive energy from a laser blast for the first time. 
Now, this is a big deal, so I dug in and I explored the different forms of fusion that are being researched now, and it's pretty exciting uh, because fusion would be a giant source of carbon-free energy. There's a whole lot of private money that's actually going into nuclear fusion these days. The running joke is that we're always 30 years away from nuclear fusion, but folks that I talk to in the space kind of chuckle these days, and they say that maybe we're 10, 15 years away from a viable fusion power plant. So it's uh, inching a little bit closer each, That's right. each time. All right, Marketplace's energy correspondent Andy Euler joining us from Austin. Thanks, Andy. You got it, Nova. And finally, it's been a rough year for investors in Tesla stock, which has lost nearly 70% of its value since the beginning of the year. Some of that because Elon Musk sold some $23 billion worth of his Tesla stock holdings this year alone, a lot of it to finance his purchase of Twitter. Well, late last week, Musk said he will refrain from selling any more shares for 18 months or more. But that didn't make a difference. Tesla stock has continued to decline. And on this post-Christmas Day holiday, for those who are celebrating, happy first day of Kwanzaa and last day of Hanukkah. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Right now it is 21 degrees in Boston, about a minute before 9 o'clock. Coming up next, it's the BBC. Also coming to City Space January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Sliman. You can get tickets at WBUR.org slash events where you can see all of City Space's winter season. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny skies, at least to start today, with increasing clouds later on, temperatures in the lower 30s. All clouds overnight Tonight, lows dropping to the lower 20s. Right now, as I said a moment ago, 21 degrees in Boston, right at 9 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. We're going to take a look at corporate monopolies. They dominate many industries, including beef. So you have cattle ranchers going broke while consumers are paying all-time record prices for beef. It's failed consumers on one end of the supply chain, and it's failed the American family farmer and rancher on the other. More Than Money, a special series on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.